Feels like we've been in Mark 5 forever since we started before Advent. Uh, had that little break for Advent and then vacation and all of that. But today we wrap it up. Uh, so Mark 5, verses 35 through 43 is uh, where we're going to be. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those uh, who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should, should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Father, we thank you for the scriptures by which we have been cleansed and continue to be cleansed through the good news of the work of your eternal Son to save us. May his words remain in us even this morning that we might bear much good and abiding fruit to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. One of the benefits of the new devotional that I'm reading, the one I gave to the officers of the church, is that I get new stories. And one of the stories that Paul Tripp tells is of a time when he was away on business and was about six hours away from home. And that's when his wife called. And he notes that his wife usually is very steady and stable. And he noticed a quivering in her voice. Particularly when she said, come home. It turns out that their daughter had been walking along the road, and a drunk driver had driven up over the curb, hit her, and pinned her body against a wall, uh, resulting in uh, shattering her pelvis as well as internal injuries. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those people who likes to think some of these things through, and I, I was trying to imagine what it would be like to get a phone call from Amy, knowing that one of my kids... Uh, was in a situation like that, and how difficult and torturous it would be to, to, to take eight hours to get home to be with my child in that kind of state. And I, I think this matters, uh, this helps us perhaps to understand the situation of Jairus, uh, the synagogue ruler, who he left home because his daughter was dying, he left home to go find Jesus. He left home 
to bring Jesus back to heal his daughter. And so he had, he had faith that Jesus could heal her. He had hope that Jesus could heal her. And here it is. He's found Jesus. Jesus is coming to his house. But then Jesus inexplicably stops and asks, who touched me? And allows this woman to give testimony to the fact that she had been having this hemorrhage, this flow of blood for 12 years, and Jesus had healed her to the glory of God. But think of this from Jairus' perspective. Why are we stopping? I mean, Mark doesn't include this, but this is what, how I would be feeling. Why have we stopped? Okay, great. Woman, flow of blood. She's lived with this for 12 years. My daughter is dying. Let's move this train. I can, I can sense how difficult this would be for Jairus. The tension is intended to be heightened in this passage from Mark. He's likely angry, certainly impatient, and possibly Confused. But, let's remember, he has just heard Jesus' words to this woman. Daughter, your faith has made you well. On the one hand, he's, he's clarifying things for this woman so she knows why it is that he healed her, uh, but he's also likely speaking to the life of this father so that he will trust that Christ will make his daughter well. It is his faith and it is his hope that drove him to seek out Jesus, but his faith is about to be tested. But we, before we get there, I just want us to remember or consider for a moment uh, that God's timetable is very different than ours. And we're often like Jairus. We're, we're impatient that God seems to be taking so stinking long to deal with these issues that are such a burden upon our souls. It's as if, we think, either God doesn't care, or God isn't able, or God's just too busy. But what we see here is a God who does care. A God who, while he's busy, is not too busy. And as we'll see, a God who's able. So let us remind ourselves when we're we're impatient, let us, uh, as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones often said, uh, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Remind yourself verbally of these, these situations where Jesus moved slower than the person wanted, but he worked better than they ever imagined. All right. While all of this is happening, while uh, Jairus is probably kind of tapping his foot, come on, let's move. While this is all happening, people show up from his house and they bring the news that he never wanted to hear. 
your daughter is dead. This was his greatest fear. This is the thing he didn't want to hear. This is the very thing he was trying to prevent by going to find Jesus. And it has come. He had come with the hope of healing, and now that hope quite literally is dead. I can't uh, think of this text without thinking about one of the um, one of the best movies ever, Shawshank Redemption. And there's this scene in the dining hall when Andy has been released from solitary confinement, and uh, he he went there because he had taken over the um, the public address system and had played classical music, and uh, that got him in trouble. And Red is wondering why he did it, and he says, hope. See, Andy was unjustly convicted of this crime, and he needed hope, and he found it in the strains of this music, unfortunately, something so simple as that. Um, But what Red says next, hope is a dangerous thing. And it's a dangerous thing precisely because we can hope in the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing. We'll get to that. But I want you to remember that even hope when it's in the right thing, as it, as it says in Proverbs 13, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We struggle as we wait, even if we wait for the right thing. Uh, But here we see that hope is dangerous because we often set the goal, the standard, the expectation of what God's deliverance will look like instead of basing it upon the promise of God. And so it's it's a hope of our own construction as opposed to the hope of God's promise. Psalm 130, which we used as our uh, call to worship this morning, includes uh, this phrase, in his word I hope. That's what true, proper, godly hope is. It's a reflection of what God has said and waiting for God to do what he has said. Misplaced hope, a phrase I've stolen from John Piper, is, is when we're not basing our hope on what God says, but simply on what we want. The job we want, the spouse we want, the child we want but don't have. That's when hope is dangerous. That's when when hope not met becomes grounds for doubt. It becomes down, uh, grounds for despair. And this synagogue ruler is right now at this crossroads. Which way am I going to go? Am I going to go down the road of despair or am I going to go down the road of real faith and trust in this rabbi? I'm currently reading a book on uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Christian life and the author, Jason Meyer, notes that when all earthly hopes are lost... A Christian still has hope because his hope is fixed not on his past, this passing world, but upon the world to come.
Now, this news that came from home, they, they kind of mentioned this, you can stop bothering or annoying or pestering the rabbi now. This news had come with the intention to stop him from disturbing the teacher. You see, uh, they respected Jesus. He's the teacher. But just like the disciples, when they're in the boat and they don't know who Jesus really is, uh, they don't know who he really is. And so as a result of this insufficient knowledge of Jesus, uh, they have limited hopes. And with the death of this girl, they believe their hopes have died. So let's go home. Let's mourn. And let the teacher go about doing what he needs to do and take care of those people he can still take care of. But Jesus continues to address Jairus. He, in a sense, ignores what these people have just said. And he reminds him, fear not, one of the most common commands in Scripture, fear not, only believe. In other words, Jairus, I'm not done yet. Death is not having the final word today. How difficult it must have been for him to believe that. How can this not be? I mean, how can this be? But fear stifles faith. We, we see the contrast here in, in Jesus' two commands. This news that he has just received from home is one that brings fear. And Jesus is saying, don't give in to that fear. Don't let fear ruin the day. Don't let fear have the day. Jesus wants Jairus to trouble him. And when you are troubled, he wants you to trouble him. Don't listen to the voice of the cynics. Don't listen to the voice of the doubters. Don't trouble Jesus with that. Trouble him. He's our great high priest. He was given for us to trouble him with the things that weigh down our souls and that make us weary. He wants Jairus and us to trouble and to trust him. Think for a moment. This, this passage has been in my mind lately. Ephesians 3, the end of, of his uh, Jesus... Uh, sorry, Paul has just been praying for the Ephesians and he does this like doxology at the end of this prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think or conceive of or imagine. In other words, our thoughts are pretty limited compared to what God can do. To Him, according to His power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
wants the people of Ephesus to know that while Paul has prayed some pretty bold prayers, they pale in comparison to what Jesus can do. So don't limit Jesus. Our fear, which limits Jesus, our fear is rooted in unbelief and often in our guilt. We heard from um, 1 Kings 17, um, this woman whose son has died. Now, we didn't, we didn't read the first part of this. Uh, this child was a gift from God through Elijah. This child's dead. And, but think of her response. She thinks of her sin. Her, where she immediately goes is her own sense of her guilt, and that's why her son is dead. That's where we often go. And so our fear is often rooted not just in our unbelief, but also in our guilt. Our fear is rooted in the reality of the justice of God, but forgetting that there is also mercy in God. Do you feel the conflict in your own heart when your hopes are dashed? When you want a spouse but don't have a spouse. Or maybe you discovered it's the wrong spouse. I say that loosely because there is not a wrong spouse, but Or you long for a child and don't have a child. Or you really need a job and you really hope that this one was going to come through and you're going to be working and you didn't get that job. I've been there. All three of those. I've been there. And I remember one time um, in our bedroom back in Florida yelling at God, what do you want from me? Because that was the voice of unbelief in my soul because my earthly hopes had just been crushed. And I was not yet ready for the hopes that He really had for me. So I know what it's like to deal with this weariness, this conflict within the soul. So, as we think about His dying daughter, we see that Jesus doesn't satisfy the hopes of our design. And it initially sounds like bad news, but it's really good news. Long run. So Jesus doesn't satisfy the hopes of our design. Secondly, if Jesus wants to keep going, what does Jesus want to do? Uh, Jairus may think that Jesus just wants to join with those who mourn. Remember, this man is likely in shock. He's just heard that his daughter is dead. He's probably not thinking rationally. His, his brain is flooded. His emotions are, are right there. Jesus does limit those who continue with him. It's, it's, it's Jairus, and it's Peter, Jacob, and John, the big three. Jesus wants the two to three witnesses to see this, but he doesn't want everybody to see this. Partially because he's still guarding the secret of who he is. Because it, 
when people realize who he really is, ministry gets more difficult, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel already. But they arrive, and the commotion of the morning uh, met them at the house because the professional mourners had been hired and had arrived already during this, uh, as it transpired. Now, the Mishnah speaks, which is a, comment, it's a commentary on uh, the Old Testament. The Mishnah mentions that <clears throat> uh, even the poorest people had two flutists and uh, one professional whaler. Uh, a man of, of Jairus's standing uh, likely had far more than two, than two flutists and one whaler. So you, you, he arri- you arrive and there's all this music going and there's people weeping and wailing, some of them professionally, which means, you know, it's not silent. They're paid for their volume, okay? But then also the family is likely engaged in this mourning that is taking place. The professionals are not mourning for them, but are, are, are trying to lead them through this mourning process. Because if you come from a family like mine, you don't know how to do this, Okay? My family just kind of like, oh, let's put that in a corner and ignore it for the rest of our lives. Okay. So here they are trying to help these people to mourn the death of this little girl. And then there's Jesus. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? <laughs> the child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus is trying to set Jairus' hopes higher. Uh, This statement calls for great faith from him and his family. Will Jesus awaken or raise this girl? Now, much has been made about the the statement, she's not dead, but sleeping. Is Jesus lying? Jesus wouldn't lie. But what's going on here, and some have, have hypothesized that while she's dead, she has, her spirit has not yet gone to the place of the dead. She's not experiencing the power of death yet. Um, we don't know, honestly. And I think it's not something to get caught up in. That's, that's uh, straining the gnat, in my opinion. Because the big point is, Jesus is about to do something that blows everybody's mind. We see that Elijah and Elisha both raised sons to life. And when they did so, in both of those accounts, they're declared to be God's prophets. Is Jesus about to be declared God's prophet by the fact that he performs this miracle. We see this also reflected in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Most likely speaking to those women whose sons were raised in uh, 1 and 2 Kings by Elijah and Elisha. Jesus' implicit call to faith here is met with derision on the part of the mourners. Faith looks ridiculous, particularly in the face of death.
Again, I want to remind you that there is a huge difference between presumption and the Word of Jesus. A tragic example of presumption is what happened around New Year's. I can't remember precisely when it was. But um, the Bethel Church, which produces a lot of worship music, I'm not getting into that. What I want to get to is the fact that uh, one of their worship leaders had a daughter who died. And it made the news. Not because she died, but because they believed she was going to be resurrected. Not when Jesus returns and everyone's resurrected, uh, but they believed something like what is going on in this text. Uh, That in a couple of days, she was going to rise from the dead and go on and grow up and be a normal kid. That's presumption. Because Jesus has made no such promise to people who have lost their children. They're not banking everything on the Word of God, rightly understood and applied, but they're banking everything on what they want, and I don't blame them for wanting that. But misplaced hope is deadly. It's dangerous. You're put to shame because now it makes the news and then you look like an idiot when God doesn't do what you said He would do. Or you fall into despair thinking that God doesn't care. But again, I want to reiterate, true hope is rooted in the promises of God. It's believing what God has said to be true. But this girl is dead. And because she's dead, she's considered to be ceremonially unclean. Jesus is not supposed to touch the body. And yet Jesus takes her by the hand. And He says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, you'll note from what was read in 1 Kings 17 that what happened is that Elijah prayed. He laid upon the body three times and he prayed. Jesus merely speaks. Not to the Father, but he speaks to the child as he takes her hand. There's no spells. There's no incantations. Uh, There's no special magic potion that that is placed here. Uh, uh, You know, there's no uh, Dr. Strange hand motions. But the girl rises at the voice of Jesus, the command of Jesus. Jesus is able to speak and the dead come to life. Because we see immediately the girl got up And didn't just get up, she began walking. It wasn't like, oh, I I feel better now. Maybe in a few days I'll be able to do something. She gets up as if nothing had happened. As if she hadn't had some deadly disease. 
She's fully restored. Her strength is there that she's able to get up and yet to, to show that it's not some phantom, it's not some ghost, it's not some hallucination, it's not some illusion. Jesus says, give her food. Jesus has turned their mourning into dancing. What's the response? Well, think again of 1 Kings 17. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. How much more for Jesus that now the synagogue leader knows that he's not simply a teacher, but he is the man of God. He is God the man. He is the one who speaks the word of the Lord, and it is true. The ministry of Jesus is authenticated. We see in a similar passage in Luke 7, though when Jesus raises a, a young boy, well, actually we don't know how the age of uh, this man, but it was a, a widow's only son. And Jesus stops the funeral procession and brings them back to life. And fear seized them all, it says in Luke 7. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. And indeed, in Jesus, God visited His people. And so Jesus fulfills the hope He gives. Not the hope of our designs, but the hope that He gives. Jesus fulfills. To answer our second question. So let's go to our third question. What are we to make of this? What are we to think of what has just transpired in all of this? And Old Testament uh, theologian Raymond Dillard notes that miracles are anticipatory and redemptive. Meaning, they anticipate something, but they also have an element of redemption to them. Salvation to them. Her rising at the word of Jesus anticipates the resurrection from the dead at the word of Jesus. She's going to die again. We don't know when, but she's going to die again. But she will join us when we rise to everlasting life. Jesus has done something great here, but he's going to do something greater then. He's going to, he has raised this girl back to life, uh, but still has a, she still has a mortal existence. He's going to raise billions to everlasting existence. But it's also redemptive. She is delivered, that word that we saw repeatedly, uh, both in the words of Jairus, as well as this woman with the unending uh, bleeding, the flow of blood, wanting deliverance. She is delivered here from the clutches of death, earthly and eternal. Jesus not just raises physically dead people, but Jesus brings spiritually dead people to life through His death and resurrection for sinners. Jesus provides the forgiveness of sin by paying the wages of sin for us, and that wage is death. 
And so to deliver us from death, Jesus withstood death. He entered into death. He remained under the power of death for three days and then was raised again unto newness of life for us. But not only that, but He cleanses us. We see in 1 John chapter 1 that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. We're, we're, sin makes us filthy, so to speak. Jesus cleanses us from our corruption. And we find this theme dominating, at least for me, Ezekiel 36, which has one of those promises, great promises of the new covenant to the people of Israel. Okay? Let's think, of, let's think of not just this daughter, but also the woman that was healed the day before, uh, the woman whose, whose unending flow Jesus resolved. Verse 17b, Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So he's comparing their way of life to someone who is unclean, impure. Then in 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God was promising to cleanse them from their impurity, the impurity they received from their idolatry, the impurity that they had from their inner corruption. And then we see again in verse 29, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And so this miracle anticipates this incredible redemptive act with the new covenant where we who are impure are made pure. Where we who are filthy are made clean. The family that witnessed this was astonished or amazed by the fact that this dead girl has come to life. And if we're paying attention, we should be astonished and amazed by our salvation. Let's look at the cross chart, Matt. I know you've been waiting for this moment. Okay. Uh, and this, I find this to be an incredibly helpful tool for, for me to process stuff. The realities of hope. And this dot represents our conversion, so to speak, where the cross is sufficient for the needs that we see. We have some understanding of the holiness of God. We have some understanding of our sinfulness. And obviously, the cross of Jesus meets those things, bridges the gap between those things. But what happens as we kind of go on from that point is that we start to lose sight of things. Um, we, we might have this um, greater understanding of God's holiness, and hopefully we have um, a, a greater understanding of our sinfulness, but that's not always the case. We should, but we don't always. But the cross is not seen as sufficient if we do. 
If we start to boast in our works righteousness, or we start to do excuse-making or lying, what happens is, is we're not boasting in the cross, and we're not boasting in Jesus. We're not glorifying in our salvation because we've shifted our focus. And so what often, often happens is that if, if we're not rejoicing, we're not amazed at our salvation, it's likely because we don't really grasp from what we've been saved. We've begun to lose sight of our sinfulness. We, we think that we're theoretically sinners as opposed to also practically sinners, and we don't need all that much help. And since we don't need all that much help, Jesus is not worth all that much glory. But when God begins to reveal to us the greatness of our sin, and not just our actions, but also the corruption within, we begin to be filled with thanksgiving for this amazing salvation because we see that it is amazing. We begin to wonder how God could love someone such as us. Because we begin to see our uncleanness. We begin to see our idolatry. We begin to see uh, all the ways in which we hurt the people that we love the most. And we see that Jesus is sufficient. And we begin to be not filled with with grief and remorse because of our sin, but we begin to be filled with joy because of our Savior. And so we recognize that that question of what are we to make of this, we are to make that Jesus is our only hope for pardon and purification. And if we have that hope fulfilled, we're filled with joy. Yes. <laughs> I'm taking I'm interpreting that as a positive groan right there. Thanks Ethan. So Paul trip as he made that long trip home wasn't banking on a miracle that somehow his daughter would be instantaneously healed. It took 4 years of rest and rehab for his daughter to be set right or mostly right. His hope as he sat on that bed next to his daughter was that Jesus would be with them in the midst of this process. And that is biblical hope because Jesus has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And so Paul Tripp was not disappointed, not put to shame by this hope that he had. Paul for instance, had, well, sorry, wrong Paul. Paul Tripp had set his sights on God's promises of salvation. This miracle that is recorded in this portion of Mark is intended to direct its original audience and to us, to Jesus himself as the only hope for our salvation. We see Jesus overcoming death and corruption. And so we can, we can trust Him to remove the sting of death and the stink of our corruption for us. And He does that 
as we trust Him who has died and been raised again for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we come to these miracles and and uh, we can struggle with doubt. We can we can struggle with did this really happen? Because it's so outside of our realm of experience. And yet, if Jesus is who your word says he is, of course he can do this. This is nothing to the one who created the heavens and the earth. And so help us to trust that the maker of the heavens and the earth is our help. That the maker of the heavens and the earth is our redeemer. Help us to respond in joy at such a great salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.